0: Jewish Views on the winning design for the new Westminster Holocaust Memorial. We find out more from designer Ron Arad, Things My Dog Has Taught Me is the new book by Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, but just what has he learned? And how Aberdeen Synagogue and Jewish Community Center went about raising £10,000 to repair flood damage.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm John Kay. The new Holocaust Memorial in Westminster will be built by the leading British architect Sir David Ajay and the Israeli designer Ron Arad. They were unanimously selected by a jury which included the Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, the Mayor of London, the Chief Rabbi, experts from architecture, art and design, and both first and second generation Holocaust survivors. Sited next to the Houses of Parliament in Westminster, the new UK Holocaust Memorial will honour the 6 million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust and all other victims of Nazi persecution, including Roma, gay and disabled people. The Jewish director of 1991 movie Bugsy has been accused of sexual harassment by well over 30 women amid the fallout from the Harvey Weinstein scandal. 72-year-old James Toback this week entirely denied the claims being made in an article by the Los Angeles Times, the author of which said 31 women had spoken on the record and more than 70 women had made allegations either on or off the record. Q8 Airways is under intense legal and political pressure in Germany for discriminating against Israelis. The Gulf Kingdom airline, already the subject of legal proceedings in the Frankfurt District Court after it banned an Israeli passenger from boarding a flight to Thailand last summer, now faces pressure from German Federal Minister of Transport Alexander de Brindt. He's ordered a state investigation into whether the airline's policy of refusing service to Israeli nationals violates air traffic laws. Albert Einstein's formula for a happy life was sold for a billion pounds at an auction in Jerusalem. The Nobel-winning scientist's musings on a handwritten note may not be as famous as his groundbreaking theory of relativity, but they still shed light on one of the great modern minds – Winners Auctions and Exhibitions said Einstein was travelling in Japan in 1922 when he was told he'd be awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. In Tokyo, Einstein scribbled the note in German to a bellboy after he didn't have cash to give him a tip. The note read, A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness.
2: That's the news. Now the sport.
1: Here's Mark Jacobs.
2: Thanks, John. Israel's judo's delegation have belatedly landed in Abu Dhabi after several visa issues delayed their arrival for this weekend's Grand Prix tournament. Their trip is already shrouded in controversy after they were told they wouldn't be allowed to compete with the Israeli flag on their uniform. National team coach Oren Smajda said, We're like an elite army unit entering hostile territory without a flag on its uniform. Looking to complete a mission, we want to beat our opponents, pick up ranking points and move on. Back home, London Lions moved a step closer to securing a date at Wembley at the end of the season, after they booked their place in the second round of the FA Vars. Two goals from Adam Birchall, along with Charlie Kessler's strike, saw them beat Clapton 3-2, with a trip to Leyton Town awaiting them in the next round. And finally... Liverpool are reportedly chasing the signature of Maccabi Tikva striker Manor Solomon, known as the Jewel of Israel. The Reds are apparently lining up a £4.5 million bid for the 18-year-old who made his senior debut less than a year ago. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk.
0: Mark, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And as we have a glance over the front page, we see the headline amongst a load of other bits and pieces, which we'll come on to in a bit, reads, This is for the nation.
3: Yes, this week, the moving culmination of the nation's wait to find out the identity of the Westminster Holocaust Memorial. Now, it must be two, maybe even three years ago that David Cameron set up the UK Holocaust Commission with this exact process in mind to set up an eternal memorial in Westminster in the heart of political London for future generations. And the winner, the design that was chosen is by Sir David Adeji and Ron Arad, And it's very difficult to imagine how this is actually going to look in years to come. They're very high vertical walls and you descend underground down very narrow corridors. Seems like a very oppressive and difficult space to occupy, but clearly that's the intention. Lots of extraordinary nominations, lots of extraordinary contenders. This one chosen as the best.
0: And also we look forward to hearing from Ron Arad himself a little later on in the programme. But Jack, I can't help but observe, even just from the computer generated images, this is certainly going to be a very striking memorial, isn't it?
4: Yes, it will be. And it needs to be because it's going to be in the heart of central London, right next to Parliament, Big Ben, London Eye. It's going to be right next to all of it. So tourists going to London for the day, you know, this, this is now going to be one of the attractions that they'll consider going to.
0: Of course, though, there is the other problem as well that one has to consider is that the reaction to those who probably don't want it there. And I don't want to bring the negative into this because it is obviously a very positive time for the community. But I can't help but think that something like this could be quite susceptible to vandalism and things like that. So it would be quite interesting to see how they manage that.
3: Well, of course, this is nothing new. A few months ago in Massachusetts, in Boston, they've got a Holocaust memorial which is made of glass. And I think for the third time that was vandalized so of course this is going to be a target but the thing that strikes me visually and we carry a couple of images of the winning design is is simply the fact that I think architecture does kind of meld your mood a bit doesn't it It changes your mood depending on the building that you're in or the environment that you find yourself in and if the impact of these pictures is carried out in in reality when people go there I think there's a a sort of sense of kind of calm sense of, of, of of somber reflection and I can't wait to visit it with my children and experienced that myself.
0: And so I say all of us to that. Now, the saga with the Golders Green Mosque continues into this week's paper. What has changed since last week?
3: Yes, so uh, this is one of the biggest doorstep stories we've had for many months and perhaps the biggest in terms of public reaction. In fact, two pages of letters. We don't carry any other letters this week apart from two and four backing or not backing our front page last week in which we called the opponents of the Golders Green Mosque hypocrites. There was a local meeting on Monday. It was bad-tempered at parts. There was a lot of anger, I think targeted at the Jewish press, not just the Jewish news. This is going to go ahead unless the local council find reason to object on grounds of pollution or traffic or congestion or other things. It's certainly not going to be stopped, I don't think, in terms of the fact that it's a a Muslim building and and nor should it. So the, the meeting on Monday, I think, was a chance for people to vent their anger. And a chance for us, I think, to reflect that we made the right decision when we came down against the objectors in last week's paper.
0: Though we don't want to go over what we went over last week. But I can't help but think, Jack, that some people probably do have feasible concerns over this mosque coming to gold as green. However, it just seems to be completely overshadowed by those who are using it as an excuse for what many interpret as Islamophobia.
4: Yes, definitely. I, as we said last week, there are definitely legitimate concerns with this. I think what's interesting about this whole saga is that it's really kind of polarised the Jewish community into two distinct groups. One for this mosque, who see it as an issue of religious freedom, and the other group who are very much opposed to it, and they say that they cite reasons such as pollution and traffic, as we said before, but there's certainly questions as to whether they have more sinister intentions.
3: I I think people can understand where both sides are coming from. I'm I'm somebody who doesn't have an intrinsic opposition to the mosque, but I think what is motivating people that do, it's on the surface anger, and that was the headline we put in the paper this week, anger at mosque meeting, but maybe on reflection a more accurate headline would be fear at mosque meeting. It's fear it's fear that's driving their reaction. I don't think they are people that are necessarily necessarily racist or islamophobic it's the fear of the unknown it's the not in my neighborhood it's that knee-jerk reaction that i think a lot of us feel when there's something that's a little bit out of our comfort zone i think the people that are supporting the mosque can see the bigger picture can perhaps reflect more on on a a more less emotional reaction and a more mature one i think
0: it's the same with most racist tendencies though and that is that when it comes to islam Islamophobia more often than not tends to be driven by fear of the unknown or fear of the think they know. And with anti-Semitism, that seems to be driven entirely most of the time on ignorance and stereotyping. So it's the same with both religions in some weird way. And I think based on that alone, we do recognize and we should recognize that there are legitimate arguments on both sides of the fence. There's
3: there's all the best interfaith work brings two sides together and shows that deep down, nuts and bolts, they're basically the same individuals motivated by the same basic human needs. But it's quite clear that interfaith has got a long, long way to go when it's faced with an issue like this. All right,
0: let's move on, have a look at some of the other stories making the paper. Emily Thornberry is to be involved in commemorating the Balfour Declaration. How, why, what?
4: So Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornberry has announced that she will be attending the balfour centenary dinner and that is instead of jeremy corbyn the labour leader who said he was unable to attend
0: a very vague kind of answer well a vague kind of answer but we do have to give him the benefit of the doubt but of course as we edge ever nearer to when we're all hopefully going to be marking the centenary of the balfour declaration it should be interesting to see what comes about one way or another from all leaders political rabbinical whoever they are in the coming
3: weeks i guess yeah, there's only going to be one show in town next week. It's the 100th anniversary of the declaration that set up the State of Israel in 1948. So Emily Thornberry at the Balfour Dinner. Just before that, we've got our own event. It's the third annual Israel Conference, which this year we're dedicating to that 100th year landmark. We've got Pretty Patel, who's going to be doing one of the main speeches. We've got Malcolm Rifkin. We've got a lot of big names coming along to that event in Parliament next Thursday, and we'll be reporting on that widely. But it's just one of a number of things to flag on what's going to be a very exciting week for the community.
0: Excellent. Well, let's turn back sort of to the front and also the back page, because there's a nice little image on the front page that says Night of Heroes. There's an even bigger image of it on the back. What is this? Is someone going to be eating a lot of chocolates?
3: (laughs) No, this is the social event of 2018 in the Jewish community. It's going to be the number one awards. We're going to be holding at a big central London venue. David Walliams, the obviously the very famous and popular comedian is going to be hosting Jewish News' Night of Heroes. It's a chance to honour the achievements of some of the extraordinary people that make our community so special. So we're going to be doing Lifetime Achievement Awards, Team of the Year, Initiative of the Year, Young Hero of the Year. We're going to be honouring some very famous names in the community who have done some amazing work over a number of years. There's going to be entertainment from some of the leading names in British showbiz. There's going to be an amazing array of fabulous entertainment and we're going to be doing it all in February and you'll be hearing a lot more about this in the weeks to come.
0: Excellent. Well, we look forward to learning more about it. If people would like some more information for the here and now, though, where do they go?
3: Uh, It's knightofheroes.co.uk, knightofheroes.co.uk. Fantastic. Thank you both very much
0: indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the
3: paper for this week. But do not forget, you can pick up your
0: copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing, plans for the Holocaust Memorial to be built alongside the Palace of Westminster have finally been announced. The winning design was the joint creation of Sir David Adjaye, landscape architects Gustafson Porter and Bowman, and our first guest, designer Ron Arad. I'm delighted to say that we can speak to Ron now. Ron, first of all, can you perhaps just start by telling us how was it that you got involved with this particular design?
5: Well, the competition was advertised and the architects in my studio were looking at it and trying to to work on the application. And then I had the idea to contact David Ajay and say to him, why don't we do it together?
0: So just uh, to clarify then, so you, you actually run an independent architectural organisation so David Ajay is obviously known as being an architect himself, and you just decides to combine forces. Is that right?
5: Yes, because I think, I mean, we are a very special studio. We do things from sculpture, industrial design, and architecture. I don't know if you are familiar with the Holon Design Museum in Tel Aviv, in near Tel Aviv, that we designed a landmark building, and we are completing a huge tower in the center of Tel Aviv but the work we do because we are not just an architectural office and because we make a point of not to becoming a big, big, big practice but to only do very carefully chosen projects when we looked at the requirements for the application we weren't sure that it was sufficient, which was good because, you know, after a very happy phone call to David, we decided to collaborate on
0: So talk a bit about that collaboration. How does that process work? Because surely as architects and designers in your own right, you must have your own individual ideas. Did you always agree at every step?
5: Yes, we did. We did I mean yeah, we did generally agree in every step and also that that the role division is very clear. We had a meeting in on-site with with David and we talked and we established the principle, I mean the idea to to not drop something in the middle of the of the park and not to lose the park to lift the end of it and to just incorporate the memorial the monument which is what we did with the learning center which was developed by David Ajay's office and I, when I'm saying I mean there is a, a, a division in in the roles and the parts but it was all done through a constant working together so the walls of the memorial found the way into the learning center so it wasn't like one thing ends and the other starts.
0: Yes, so it all it, blends
5: it, together almost. It, it all it is one piece. It is one piece, and our um, monument, our sculptural memorial, is in a way the entrance for the learning center.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the design for anyone who maybe hasn't seen it? I'm sure that obviously images are going to be all over the Internet by now. So I would urge anyone who hasn't seen it to go and have a look because it, it simply looks breathtaking, frankly.
5: When, when you are approaching it from the House of Parliament, there's a hint of it in the horizon of the park. And I'm saying the horizon of the park. The park didn't have a horizon before because it was flat on the ground, but we lifted it. So you can see the hint of maybe what's to come. And then once you go round it, because the park itself is lifted and we created a little sort of amphitheater-like area in front of it, it is big and it has a lot of presence.
0: Ron, this might sound a bit of a strange question. Why was it important for you to get involved in this? Why did you want to do something about this
5: memorial? why it's because it is a very important thing to do and look I I come from a place where the Holocaust prevails like the weather when I grew up I mean everything I mean the Holocaust is there daily every political discussion everything there's always reference to it which is maybe why I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do anything like that in Israel it wouldn't be urgent to me, it would be important to me. But here it is. Also I liked I liked the brief and I liked the people that set up the competition. It wasn't just a tribal thing. It was I believe it is a monument against hate of all its forms. And it is it is a reminder the location is amazing. It is in, a, in the shadow of the, you know, the temple of, of democracy and, and humanity, which we want to believe the House of Parliament is. And there's this, the park and the river and the business as usual. It's very important now to say, hey, hey, let's remember that there are other things
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned about that it's not just a tribal, as you say, not just a tribal thing, because Sir David Adjaye, I'm guessing, doesn't necessarily have Jewish heritage, but obviously he felt it was important to be involved in the project as well. What would you say that Sir David's team brought to it for not necessarily having that Jewish interest in this project in the first place?
5: They brought to it sort of cosmopolitan, humanistic, Thing. I mean, the thing is, it was amazing to see that David the David and his team had to learn things that I grew up with. They had to learn about it, and uh, it was fantastic to see.
0: And also, how did it feel when you learned that the judges unanimously decided that the design that you were part of was the winning design? What was that moment like?
5: <laughs> it was absolutely great. I mean, we felt, we felt good when we presented it to the public, at the v and and we felt good when we were interviewed by the panel of the judges and we thought I mean there wasn't one bad word there, it wasn't like anything that left us with a nasty I mean it was a very very intelligent good conversation with a very impressive panel and you know you walk out of a session like that and we felt really good and we weren't wrong
0: <laughs> well i'm not surprised you felt really good because congratulations Mazatov, it's amazing it really is a fantastic achievement what happens next just really quickly are you going to be well, involved I mean, from here on until the actual finished building
5: of it it's a long journey i mean it's not that you do you do like a sketch and images and renders and there it is go it's a lot of i mean there'll be it's it's a lot of hard 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 work and that's what we'll be doing until it's completed. And there'll be, you know, there's, as you know, there's lots of the usual resistance to anything good or bad that that's about to happen.
0: Well, let us not dwell on that and let us dwell on the positive, which Let's is that you, you yeah. are part of the successful winning design for the new Westminster Holocaust Memorial. And from all of us here at the Jewish Views, huge congratulations, Mazel Tov, And thank you so much for doing such amazing work.
5: Excellent. Thank you.
0: Ron Arad, designer of the Westminster Holocaust Memorial, joint designer, I should say, of the Westminster Holocaust Memorial. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalists and authors Emma Klein and Jeremy Havadi. And they'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, the new Westminster Holocaust Memorial and the importance of it in trying to educate future generations. Plus, community editor Diana Toman is away this week, so our very own Tony Honigberg will We'll be speaking to Mark Taylor, president of the Aberdeen Synagogue and Community Centre, following their efforts in raising £10,000 to repair flood damage to their synagogue. But first, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that here in the UK, we appear to be a bit of a nation of pet lovers and the Jewish community is absolutely no exception to that rule. Well, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg has written a book, one of many books he's written, but he's written a book about his dog Mitzvah. The book is entitled Things My Dog Has Taught Me and explores the relationship between him and his much beloved pet. Well, our Arts Editor Kate Fulton is taking a much-deserved week off this week. So in her place, we have sent our very own Harley Baptiste to go and meet Rabbi Wittenberg. Harley. That's right. I'm sitting here with Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg and Mitzpah.
6: Rabbi, tell me more about him. So he's a a collie. We'd had a previous dog who'd been found in the street by a member of my congregation, Safi, who was with us for 15 happy years. And he was really getting older. His hips were going. And we were on a short holiday in Wales when I saw a little sign by a farm saying, Border Collie Puppies. So I said to the children, should we go and just take a look? And of course, that was the great mistake. So we just took a look and we took a fancy and then we thought, would our older dog accept a puppy? So we took him out the car and the puppies and the dog seemed to get along. And we'd been told for a while Get a puppy before your beloved dog dies. You'll find it less terribly painful. And that's how Mitzbah came home with us and found from his brothers and sisters and cousins all having flocks of sheep, he had a flock of congregants. <laughs> nice. And
7: usually a lot of people pick their breed based on their own personalities rather than the actual
6: personality of the dog. Why, why a border collie? I... Maybe that's for a psychologist to comment. I've always liked them. They're 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 bright. They're 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 sparky. They're active. I think they're beautiful dogs, mm. and I love those big ears. Oh yeah, they're just all, all the better for listening with. Absolutely. And one of the things the book is about it, it is it is about my dogs and some of the stories, and it's sort of an introduction to a Jewish household through the perceptions of a dog. But it's also about the emotions that dogs teach us and bring out from us. It's about companionship, faithfulness, kindness. It's about cruelty. It's about loss. So in a way, the book isn't just or even mainly about dogs. It's about caring. And if I'd been writing something about being a community minister, a community rabbi, I would have written a lot of the same things. Can you differentiate uh, your life before being a, a dog
7: owner and after being a dog owner?
6: Well, there's the walks. I've always been, we've always been keen walkers in our family. But the dog takes you, you know, the dog will come along and tell you, take me out now, please. Late at night, last thing. And... At first one thinks, I'm tired, come on. But then you go out and you go into the woodlands and you see the world in a way you hadn't seen it before. You walk along moonlit paths, you go through the shadows of trees, you see the stars, the dog stops and looks at something and you notice it too. And so the dogs become the guide and this is a spiritual thing to a greater sense of wonder and awe, a greater awareness of the world around. And for that I'm very grateful and that's been special. Equally important is the constant companionship. You know, dog. I'm lucky enough to have a job where I can often take the dog with, or go somewhere, leave the dog in the car for a few minutes, and then take him for a short walk. The companionship, the the sense of faithful, steady being with you, which develops very quickly for dog owners into love. And how do you find that
7: the lessons that you've learned from from your dog and your time as being a pet owner? How do you find that these lessons have come into your, your, just your average everyday life, whether it's just as Jonathan Witteberg walking down the road or as Rabbi Jonathan Witteberg addressing a congregation?
6: Well, in this room we're sitting now, quite often people will come and talk. If the dog comes in, I always ask people, do they mind the dog? Because some people are frightened of dogs and some people have allergies. And if, they, if they're not comfortable with the dog, I'll always put the dog in another room. But most people are happy for the dog. The dog sits there quietly. The dog's a great listener you sense the dog intuits the feeling in the room. And once with our first dog, Sufi, there was somebody who was deeply upset and began to cry. And before I knew it, the dog, the dog was sitting on this person's lap, licking away their tears. So, so dogs, th- I don't believe dogs understand every word their owners say. I think that's, that's sentimental, but not true. They do understand a lot of what we don't say. They do go for the heart, they, they feel the feelings. So that's one very important thing. Another is the comfort dogs bring. I've often taken the dogs, particularly Safi, our earlier dog, I took him often to the North London hospice. I've taken them into, into other places where older people, people with Alzheimer's, people very ill, they'll reach down to touch the dog and it's a communication deeper than words. And you can see people who might have, you know, they might have not responded to language, but they do respond to the dog. And when people are bereaved as well, there's one family in particular I'm thinking about. They said, bring your dog when you come to see us. And they'd had a tragic loss and they got a puppy. And they told me after a while, the puppy helped us through. You really don't feel you can face the world in the morning, but you've got to get up because of the dog. And then the dog is full of energy and people, people stop you and they talk to the dog and they talk about the dog. And it, it helped draw them back into life. So that there's a lot that our dogs give us. And in the course of preparing the book, I also visited Canine Partners in Sussex where dogs are trained. It was amazing. I watched one dog learn how to unload a washing machine because it was going to have a disabled owner and, an, and another dog actually helping someone take their shoes and socks off to get ready for bed because they themselves couldn't reach their, their, their feet. They were, they were wheelchair-bound. That's incredible. It was amazing. And then I went to medical detection dogs where dogs have been trained, they detect certain kinds of cancer, so they're used in diagnosis. It's not solely the dog, but the dogs have a very good sense of direction of where things might lead. And even more, dogs can detect sugar highs and lows in people with diabetes. And therefore, for, for family, for instance, who have a very young child who's got type 1, they would otherwise the parents have to test their child every hour during the night but the dog learns to recognize and sleeps next to the bed and if the dog can smell from the child's breath that they're gonna have a sugar low or high they wake the parents with the tester kit in their mouth and you know there's been a comment you know we got our life back when that dog came to stay with us and that's as well as hearing dogs and guide dogs and and just dogs for our own companionship. So I wanted to write in appreciation of how much we gain from the non-human world. That's incredible. So more than just
7: a moral and a spiritual compass a, a dog can be. It's it's they can affect your your physical lives and, and and they can be a the support that you might
6: otherwise not have completely. Absolutely. And Loneliness is such a feature of modern life. And for many people, dogs can be a dog or a cat for an older person. You know, their children may live at the other end of the world. They lose their partner. The dog may effectively be their next of kin, more or less, their closest, the closest being. And it's terribly important that care homes, where possible, should take pets with their owners because that parting can be devastating for somebody and people on the street as well you see them with a dog and you feel perhaps they're that bit less alone so the companionship, there's an amazing organisation called the Cinnamon Trust and they help people who are no longer physically able for instance they have volunteers take the dogs for a walk but they'll also help reassure somebody You know what's going to happen to my beloved dog when I'm gone so they help to find homes which will look after their, their pets. So if I was to pick up the
7: book and just turn to a random page, a random chapter, what might I be able to expect
6: from it? What might I find on, on some of the pages in there? Well, I've tried to sort of intersperse two kinds of writing. One kind of writing, which I've talked about quite a lot, is the writing about the emotional themes, about loneliness, about kindness, about avoiding cruelty, about friendship. And and them touching on what the dogs bring us, but also what at heart our human needs are. And the other kind of writing is much more descriptive. I talk about how we got our dogs. I talk about the dog and the Jewish year, particularly the food aspects that the dog enjoys, but not only. And then I've talked about a number of long walks. I, I walked from my grandfather's synagogue in Frankfurt. He fled when the Nazis, after Kristallnacht, Nazi time, I walked with the dog back along the Rhine and our adventures and I write about a long sponsored walk 100 miles around London in a week, which I did with the dog. And we visited all kinds of places that represent my and my community's values, hospices, places of worship of different faiths, wildlife reserves. So these kinds of writing are are, are interspersed in the book, hopefully to make it both entertaining
0: and give it, I hope, some depth fantastic i think the only thing i've ever learned from monty and carlo which are my dogs by the way in case you wondered i think the only thing i've ever learned from them is how not to behave but there you go thank you very much to rabbi jonathan wittenberg speaking to our very own harley baptist there about his new book things my dog has taught me and if you'd like more information on the book then please do go to our website jewishviews.co.uk Now, let's take a trip up north, shall we? To be precise, to Aberdeen. And I think that it goes to show that no matter where you are in the country or indeed the world, when it comes to the Jewish community, the emphasis must be placed on the word community. Aberdeen Synagogue and Community Centre was recently hit by a flood and so their community have rallied together to raise the rather impressive sum of £10,000 to try and repair the flood damage. Well, as I said earlier on, Community Editor Diana Toman is taking a much-deserved week off this week as well. So we have sent Tony Honigberg in her place to speak to Mark Taylor, the President of the Aberdeen Synagogue and Community Centre. Tony.
8: Mark, can you tell me exactly what happened? What caused the flood?
9: The shawl is housed in an 1820s building and above that is a community centre which has a washing machine. The washing machine broke during the fuel cycle and proceeded to fill the building with water, not just a washing machine, for about an hour. And then, fortunately, a lady who lives upstairs in a flat heard what was going on and turned the machine off. One thing that
8: occurred to me when I read the article that you went out and raised this £10,000, which is absolutely brilliant, and we'll talk about that in a minute, did you not have insurance to cover any damage on the building?
9: Yes, we do have insurance, but unfortunately our was set up many, many years ago and we never noticed that it had come out of sync with the value or the cost of building. The insurance company kindly told us after the event that we were underinsured and because of that they were only prepared to pay for two-thirds of the repair cost.
8: What was, what was the total cost of the whole repair then in that case?
9: We're not finalised on the repair costs yet, but we think it's between 30 and
8: £35,000. I was impressed to read that the yeah. Aberdeen's mosque came to your help also. How did that occur?
9: Yes. Well, we belong to a number of the interfaith groups in Aberdeen, and Debbie, my wife, was at one of the meetings, and she happened to have the brainwave of the imam of the mosque to say, some of their chairs so that we could use them in the 10-piece we were setting up in one of our community's houses. And the mosque said, yes, of course. Uh, And that's how we got hold of them.
8: And and that was over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur?
9: That's right, yes. Okay.
8: Where did you hold the service then over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Because you obviously couldn't use the shawl itself.
9: One of our members lives in the centre of Aden. He kindly converted the front living room of his house into the synagogue. So, set the chairs up, we took the scrolls from the synagogue into his house, he took down all the paintings, decorated it nicely, took over all the prayer books, all the kiddish cups, and all of the paraphernalia you have, and we ran it there.
8: Out Out of curiosity, you've got a shore building, a dedicated shore building, and you're using someone's front room. What sort of size community do you have?
9: Oh, it's tiny. We have about membership of about 35 people. The total Jewish community part of the world, that's Aberdeen and North East Scotland, is around 50 to 200. We have students at the universities in Aberdeen and there's about 25 Jewish students at the moment.
8: Okay, so, so at least you get a minion at something, if nothing else. Now, tell me about the £10,000, because the, the money that raised came not only from your own community locally and people locally, but I understand it came from lots of places around the world as well.
9: Yes, we got donations before northeast of Scotland and Scotland in general, but we got donations from Canada and missions from the USA.
8: Were these people that had a link to the shawl itself, did their ancestors, their parents, grandparents or, or something have a link to the shawl? Is that why they donated?
9: In some cases they had been to Aberdeen or had been students in Aberdeen and had stayed in the shawl in the student's flat at the top of the building. In other cases they were visitors to Scotland, had come and come to a service at the synagogue in Aberdeen and heard about the story, and were kind enough to donate.
8: Have you done the building work yet?
9: No, the building work has started on Monday. The building's been dried out. That's going to take about three to four weeks, and then they will start redecorating, putting the floors back. And only at that point will we know how much, and the final figure that the community will have to pay Probably need a bit more money for that. So we're continuing to fundraise because I expect the bill climbed over time.
0: Mark Taylor, president of the Aberdeen Synagogue and Jewish Community Centre, speaking to Tony Honigberg there. And I do apologise for the quality of the line that you heard Mark talking on. But if you do think that you would like to help somehow the Aberdeen community in their efforts to raise funds, then please do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link to an article with all the information you need.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are journalists and authors Emma Klein (laughs) and Jeremy Havadi. The subject for this edition is based on our main story. Plans for the new Holocaust memorial to be built alongside the Palace of Westminster have been announced. We thought we'd use this to ask how important is it to keep the Holocaust in people's minds and how can we ensure it's never forgotten? Emma, let's start with you. How crucial... Do you think this new memorial and learning centre will be in educating future generations about the Holocaust? This
11: is very interesting, Clive, because I was just reading something online from The Telegraph about this. And this was written by the daughter of German refugees. And she said because the Imperial uh, War Museum has an excellent exhibition and also some educational facilities about the Holocaust, this memorial, which is due to be placed very near the museum would be somewhat... She thought, had there been a memorial like this in another place, not so close to where there are already memorials in a way of the Holocaust, would be more suitable. She was rather against this. So I... For myself, I think, obviously, the Holocaust has to be remembered. My husband was a child of survivors. And, yes, but having read this article by someone who is perhaps more deeply in the picture than me, I am neutral and I don't know whether it is the right place. Well,
10: I have talked to survivors of Auschwitz who think it's in the ideal place, particularly as it's next to the most famous parliament in the world, which is all about democracy and which is where Churchill saved This country from
12: Hitler. So I think...
11: It is suitable.
10: I'm sorry, I I disagree with that entirely. What do you think,
12: Jeremy? No, I was going to say I was going to make exactly the same point. The Houses of Parliament are the citadel of democracy and, in fact, probably the most recognisable symbol of democracy in the world. Plus, as you say, there's a wonderful statue of Churchill opposite Parliament Square. Now, in my opinion, to have a Holocaust memorial centre in that place is deeply significant because in a way what the Holocaust reminds us of is the catastrophe that happens when you have the antithesis of democracy, when you have a dictatorship, when you have tyranny, when all democratic values break down, mass persecution and genocide can result, as indeed they did in this case. And so I think it's a stark reminder of what we have with political values that we celebrate with democracy and what can result when those values are completely taken away. Do we need a second
8: Holocaust memorial or museum when there's already one in the War Museum?
12: It depends obviously what this particular one adds. personally, i I think that this is a very suitable and enlightened gesture, and I think that what what it should incorporate is an understanding of why it is that the Holocaust took place. And so it needs to it needs to encompass the whole dimension of persecution and genocide. It needs to very clearly explain the link with anti-Semitism through the ages. And I have to say, there are some times when you can go to an exhibit about the Holocaust, even a museum, and it simply doesn't make that connection. Fair and point. what I hope is that this one will definitely make that connection. Because and to go this in a way answers your other point. By making that connection with the most virulent and the most unique form of racism that mankind has ever encountered, i.e. anti-Semitism, by making the link between that and the Holocaust, we can actually enable people to really understand what happened and hopefully to try and resist it in the future.
10: When I was in Berlin a couple of years back and I met some extremely charming German people, they said that their Holocaust memorial was absolutely the ideal thing to keep it in the German mind oh, all the time that this, in fact, did happen and that Germany, well not Germany, but a oh. German dictator had led to this. And therefore, I think it's terribly important. Is, is yes. this
8: important? Just something that just came to mind. Is this more important because it is a stand alone memorial? rather than the one in the War Museum, which is a part of the War Museum in another building. Exactly. So, and so not, this uh, is now face-on.
10: And what's more, it's in a central position. And as we said earlier, it's next to the Houses of Parliament, which is the heart mm. of democracy throughout the world.
11: Fair point. But this is interesting that this lady, you know, who has a direct link to this, had that feeling. So I just, you know had just read it before coming here so I was wondering you know that it linked to what your question was. Do
8: do you think also that this means more to us because we're Jewish uh, and has anybody spoken to anybody that isn't Jewish and what are their thoughts on it?
10: Well I have spoken to people who are not Jewish who think it's a marvellous idea and I Mm. spoke to one person who hasn't a tiny bit of Jewish blood in him at all who said this is something that we all need, we non-Jews, mm. and to be drawn to it and to be close to it and to see what has been done in the twentieth century, should never occur again. And one of the yes.
8: designers, of course, is not Jewish. Yes, one of the designers of it. So yes. that's uh, another link to yes. the non-Jewish community.
10: And and of course, uh,
8: I mean, I know we look at this as being the Holocaust memorial, but there have been lots of
10: disasters over the years as well. Haven't they in Rwanda and other places? Of that, course, but there should... n- there's never been a situation where 10 million people, not just 6 million Jews, no, but, but the just... Jews, ten and all the million others, yes. people were destroyed by the evil that the Holocaust
12: was. Hmm. I, I think two points. I mean, first of all, it's very important to remember the other victims of Nazi tyranny. Sure. And if you go to the Imperial War Museum, part of the Holocaust Memorial there, you do in fact, there there, there is an emphasis on that. So you do find, for example, that they talk about gay people, gypsies uh, gypsies who are killed. And it's very important to remember that. So that should be part of this. But at the same time, I think it's very important to remember the uniqueness of the, of the genocide of Jews, namely the fact that the Nazis were determined to To wipe wipe out out. every single individual, every single baby to wipe out the biological basis of one entire people. And that was, that was in a sense what gave it the unique focus that, you know, I'm not in any way suggesting that the persecution of others in some sense was le- was lower on the moral calculus. We should remember those other victims. But as I say, there is a unique intensity and frenzy when it comes to
11: the 27, 27.
12: persecution of the Jews. Mm-hmm. The, initial, the
8: initial thought
10: was to destroy
8: the, the Jews.
11: The Jewish and race, yeah. They
10: didn't
12: mention the gypsies and the
11: homosexuals
12: no, no. until
10: later, of course. Sadly, I can't remember her name, but there was this <clears> amazing woman who wrote a book a year or two ago, and I had the great honour of interviewing her. I've mentioned this before in this programme, but I had the great honour of interviewing her in front of a great number of people in which we talked about the Holocaust. And she said, unfortunately, she said, I have had children and I never talked about the Holocaust to them. And she was now in her 80s. And she said, I'm worried now because I suddenly realise I should have told my children. I should have told the world about what I had suffered, and she'd been in Auschwitz, and she said, it is most important, not because I'm Jewish, not because I suffered from the Holocaust, but it's most important that the world should never forget. And now I'm in my eighties, it worries me that unless people like me talk about it now, it will it will be in time forgotten, and it will be a part of history, like the Inquisition and that sort of thing. And this, this well, yes. is where
8: the Holocaust Educational Trust has come in, yes, because they yes. have taken these survivors who never wanted, and understandably, never wanted to talk about it. it must well, have been so awful; we can't imagine. And they have talked them round to talking. About their experiences during the war years and the Holocaust, and going out to school children and talk, as well as adults, but mainly well, school
11: children. Well, actually. In the case of my in-laws, my husband didn't want to hear about it when he was a young chap because it was too difficult. But my mother-in-law was quite willing to talk about it and she talked to me in the only languages we could communicate, in pidgin German because I never knew German and she spoke German, and pidgin Hebrew because my Hebrew was better than hers. But I got her whole story, including the fact that she was sent to Auschwitz with her parents and her parents were immediately, as they were older, put to the gassing section and she just followed her mother and she was sure it was Mengele who dragged her out and put her to the work section well that's fascinating yes actually because she must have been when I met her she had blue eyes light hair no Jewish nose, so she must have looked like a potential Aryan girl. And he just dragged her away and put her to the work section. And as she was able to sew, she survived.
8: I wonder how it affected the children of the Holocaust victims. I know we're talking about the Holocaust Memorial because they're the ones, the children and the grandchildren are the ones that are going to see the Holocaust Memorial. How did their parents' lives during the war years and in the concentration camps affect the children? and the grandchildren,
10: maybe even the great-grandchildren? Well, they they do say, I mean, I don't know, but I do know that they say that it has affected their lives... To a great extent.
11: Well, very much so. My husband always wanted to push it away. But then much later, he took it on and he started to write. And he wrote a beautiful article that was in the Catholic Journal of the Tablet last year at the time of Holocaust Memorial Day. And they were all the editors there were admiring it greatly because it was such an important part of his life that he you know, acknowledged much later.
12: My wife speaks about the Jewish community in Brazil and... Many, many of the Jewish community are the descendants of those who actually came, Holocaust survivors who came to Brazil just after the Second World War. And she tells me that many among that next generation, i.e. the children, have really suffered. I mean, suffered from almost what seems like an inherited sense of fear, of of trauma, of, of paranoia, whatever you want to call it, but they really have sort of inherited in a sense that terrible fear that they knew their parents obviously had as they were you know suffering in the most appalling ways so I do think that it affects the children how much it's going to affect the next generation after that I'm not sure.
8: But mm-hmm. I guess, has I guess to that depends effect. how the children have coped with it so mm. how the grandchildren and great-grandchildren will cope with it so having the Holocaust memorial being built now outside Westminster do you think that will help the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? I'm sure
10: it will. Because it's then in your face with it, isn't it? I have met people in other countries, in Germany, in Israel and in other Mm -hmm. countries. I have met people who are the descendants of people who have been in Auschwitz and places like that, who still suffer from it because of the, the history of it. And therefore, the more open it becomes, the easier it becomes. Hmm. Interesting. Easier to talk about. Yes. Yes. Because it's a very difficult thing to talk about, particularly if it's two or three generations, it's been talked about, then you think, well, really, this has nothing to do with me, and then you find that it does. Do you think vandalism of this memorial will be a
8: problem?
11: That's interesting,
8: Because it is in the open, it's not enclosed in another
12: building somewhere. Well, I think think you're going to have that issue, to be honest, with pretty much anything like this. I think when you have a visible symbol of a minority, particularly Jewish minorities, that that is going to be a problem. And I I would like to think that improved security measures will be put in place. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be. Mm.
10: But, I mean, that applies to everything these days. Nothing is safe. No. And I don't see why it shouldn't be... If it's well looked after, I'm quite sure that it will be perfectly safe and it will draw people to it. Yeah.
8: I'm sure the security will be quite good there
10: anyway because of, uh, because of the Houses of Parliament. And, and it's interesting, Jewish News has made it their main story this week. And in it, VA Director Tristram Hunt said he was proud of the museum's association with the project, adding, to defend the truth, education is essential... And this yeah, is the important really thing, sweet. the education of it, yeah. very, and how people will learn about it. Very important. Yeah. So, so not just future generations of Jewish people, but the, everybody, everybody must yeah. learn everybody. about it. I mean, as as these as I mentioned earlier, these German people I met in Berlin, who took me round the whole of Berlin, but said to me, first of all, before I, we show you anything, we want to show you where it was... We Germans, they didn't say the Germans of that time, she said, we Germans killed people on these streets. But now we have this wonderful building into which people can go and learn about it all. And the most amazing thing about that place is there's a tunnel through which you can walk. And the tunnel goes on and on Mm. and on. And this woman took me into it. This Protestant German woman took me into it, and she said, "I weep every time I walk through here." And yes. anyway, there we are. That perhaps good is night. a good place in which to good stop, night to finish. because our time is up. My thanks to our guests, journalists and authors Emma Klein and Jeremy Havadi. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us, and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Edgewood and Hendon Reform Synagogue.
13: Sidra Vayera offers many golden Jewish guidelines for those seeking to live a fulfilling life. Guidelines for those in our roles as spouses, parents or adult children. Guidelines to support the hungry and the homeless, the oppressed and the vulnerable. Let me focus on just the role, the responsibility, the mitzvah of the adult child to his, her ageing parents. Sidra Vayera concludes with Yaqedah, God's instruction to Abraham to take his son Isaac, said by the rabbis to be 36 years old, on a three-day journey to Har HaMoriah, and there to bind him to an altar and sacrifice him. Abraham sets out to follow the instruction. On arrival, binds his son to an altar, knife in hand, at the ready. An angel intervenes, "Al tishlach yad chel ha-na'a. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Abraham stops, Isaac is spared. However, understandably, this near-death experience was deeply troubling, traumatic for Isaac. Father and son were described as going together to Har HaMoriah, yet they do not return home together. The Torah recording that the next time father and son are in each other's presence is at Abraham's funeral. The first time we read of Isaac after the is on his return from Ba'el where earlier Hagar had fled, the same Hagar who had given birth to Abraham's son, Ishmael. Why did Isaac travel to see Hagar? Some say, having heard of his mother Sarah's death, realizing that his father must now be distressed, lonely, alone, he sought to persuade Hagar to return to Abraham. Indeed, the Torah tells us that Abraham remarried, married Keturah, identified by a Midrash as Hagar. Although traumatized by his Akedah experience and choosing never to speak to his father again, Isaac was determined that his elderly father would not live out his final years in solitude. It is a well-recognized syndrome that some bereaved spouses die soon after their partner metaphorically, perhaps even literally, dying of a broken heart. Care homes, yes, even Jewish care homes, are filled with residents whose families, adult children and grandchildren, maintain only a spasmodic and superficial contact. Alachat Kama how much more distressing for the bereaved elderly who do not live under the umbrella of a care home and do not enjoy visits, phone calls from family. The Torah tells us that Abraham died severe, contented. Although father and son never spoke again after the Akedah, Isaac ensured that his elderly, bereaved father would, according to the Midrash, enjoy the presence and support of Hagar. Isaac deserves, because of his filial care, to be the second of the Shlosha Avot, the second of the three founding fathers Of the Jewish people.
0: Isn't it unusual that despite being a religion that primarily focuses on family and family values, we do need to be reminded how important it is to look after all generations once in a while? And I have to confess, it is not necessarily something that I think of automatically. And I believe that to be the case with most people because they just think of almost looking down on generations because it's the next generation down that potentially is more vulnerable but really, really thought-provoking stuff from Rabbi Stephen Katz there from Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. Thank you very much to him for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to our guests, to Ron Arad, the designer or co-designer behind the new Westminster Holocaust Memorial, to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg telling us about his new book, Things My Dog Has Taught Me, and also to Mark Taylor, the president of the Aberdeen Synagogue and Community Centre, talking about raising 10000 pounds to repair flood damage thank you also to our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening and we mustn't forget the team including our producers tony Honnickberg, harley baptist and sue greenberg you can always listen to the most recent edition of the jewish views by visiting our website jewishviews.co.uk where you'll also find the option to listen to all previous episodes as well the jewish views is brought to you in association with the jewish news and is part recorded at the studios of jewish care in london i'm phil dave do make sure you join us next time here on the jewish views goodbye